This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Founder Stories is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. A founder's journey has its highs and lows. It's not a linear path. Every founder is also a regular person, filled with high hopes and big dreams. That middle part of their story, before they reach the top, is where we can catch them at their fullest potential. What we learn of their past gives us a glimpse into their future. This is Founder Stories. Today's founder is someone I know quite well. She dropped me on my head when I was a baby, smacked me in the head with a polo mallet, destroyed me in karate, and almost became the youngest black belt in Bangladesh. It's a miracle I'm not permanently concussed today. This is all to say, Kulsum Lakani is a force to be reckoned with. Never taking no for an answer, she's helped build a tech ecosystem in Pakistan a decade before the world recognized the country's promise. She's also my sister. This is the story of Eye to Eye. My name is Gulsum Lakani, and I am the co-founder and general partner of Idai Ventures, which is an early-stage venture capital fund focused on Pakistan. I was born in Dubai. I spent my first five years in Dubai, UAE. Then I moved to Dhaka, Bangladesh, and lived there for all of elementary school, went to international schools overseas, so hence the American accent, also very proud third culture kid. Moved to Pakistan when we were 11. That's where I did middle and high school and graduated from high school and moved before I moved to the U.S. for university. Identity was something that was really complex and something that probably plagued me a lot personally. I, I can't speak for how it played out for my siblings. But for me personally, I was very thoughtful or I think I thought too hard about the fact that I never felt enough of any one identity. And so I think for me, identity was something that was a constant battle of understanding who I was. I sounded completely American, but didn't live in America until I was 18 even though we'd spend summer vacations there as a kid. So I never really had that American upbringing fully, even though we went to American schools overseas. I looked Pakistani, but never felt Pakistani enough, especially because we didn't speak Urdu at home. We spoke English at home. And so when I moved to Pakistan, people made fun of my accent when I tried to speak Urdu. So just stopped speaking that altogether. And I think for me, the way that I explored identity was personally through the lens of 1971, because that West and East Pakistan were together until 71 and then split apart. So the way I explored my identity personally was through understanding the history of those two countries and the breakup of it. As I got older, I got a lot more comfortable with the fact that I didn't have to be half and half, but I could be fully and wholly both. And that's when I started to feel more comfortable in my own skin. I think what's really interesting to me is that Bangladesh as a country is the first and probably one of the only countries in the world that was born out of a movement for language. So a fight to actually be able to express themselves in their own language. And I think that's why 
Bengalis and Bangladeshis are so proud of speaking Bengali. It's something that they wear as a sign of pride. For me also as an adult, when I wanted to improve my Bengali and my Bangla and speaking it with my mom and my sister, that's the way that I express myself on my Bangladeshi side. Most in all of my professional life has been centered on Pakistan since I was 24 years old. Even in graduate school, I focused on that in grad school, but when I started working and started writing about Pakistan, it was when I was 24 years old and I'm you know, 39 now. So 15 years of my life has been dedicated to Pakistan. And so it's a little bit of a hilarious, masochistic relationship because it's a country that doesn't always love you back, but you feel such a deep sense of pride towards and a sense of responsibility towards wanting to change it. I feel such a sense of pride of being someone who is Pakistani that feels a sense of responsibility of wanting to change things, but also feels so proud of other amazing Pakistanis and wanting to amplify their voices and their potential. And I feel the same way about Bangladesh, but for me, Pakistan is probably where my deepest connection lies because that's where our most formative years were spent. I don't think there is a monolithic way that someone can grow up in Pakistan, right? I mean, you've interviewed Wakas and Sidra on this podcast, and they've had a very different perspective on what it meant to grow up in Okara, where they are from, versus for us, we had a very unapologetically, but it's something that I acknowledge frequently, a very privileged upbringing in Pakistan and a very bubbled upbringing. Growing up in Islamabad, our mom wanted us to move to Islamabad because it was safe. And that's exactly how I would describe our upbringing in Islamabad. And then we went to the American school on top of that, which was its own little bubble within that, right? So you're growing up in a very, very safe, almost like clinically safe city, very safe for kids, like lots of mountains, fresh air. So great for kids to grow up. And then on top of that, you're growing up in an international school system that is in its own bubble within that. I think it's something that is really important to acknowledge that not a lot of people had that same access or privilege that we had. And so I also take that with a sense of responsibility of I've had that access, but how can I pay that forward? I really wanted to go to film school. My brother and I were both obsessive about films growing up and probably spent so much of our time like going to video shops and things like that and renting movies. So for some reason, I got it in my head that I really wanted to go to film school. I applied and got into the School of Speech at Northwestern University, which is their journalism media school. And then our dad was not excited about this at all. I also got into the University of Virginia. Our dad was much more excited about me having a liberal arts degree rather than focusing on film and my undergrad. And especially because we had a lot of family friends in Washington, D.C. when our family was so far away, felt a lot more palatable to our dad, made sense for him. And so decided after, you know, the lot of the tussling about wanting to go to film school and deciding to put that dream aside, still love movies and probably have that secret dream in the background to one day be a film critic, but instead decided to go to the University of Virginia for my undergrad. I really loved college for my four years. I really loved the college town experience of UVA. I think it was very foreign to me at first. And I think the only way I had ever really experienced American universities or seeing them had been through films. And so watching movies of like fraternity parties and things like that, that was the first time I would like had gone to a fraternity party. And I was like very much like fish out of water experience. I still remember my first frat party. You kind of find your people. And so I just loved 
college. When I look back on it, it's I still see it with kind of a rose-colored lens. And it was a really great space. You know, I fell in love the minute I took my first class was in politics. My very first class I ever took was compared to Politics 101. And I fell in love that day with politics. And I just was like, this is it. I was like a horse with blinders on. That's all the classes I took was foreign policy related because we grew up so global. And so I found politics and foreign policy and just the geopolitics of it, which is mostly about relationships. I found that super, super interesting just because of how we were raised. I think politics for me was really interesting in that lens. And it's also why when I eventually went to graduate school, conflict resolution, which is what I did for my master's degree, fit really well into how I viewed the world. It was ultimately conflict resolution in how we were raised. Not only was I focused on foreign policy, I was also the most interested in how conflicts arise and how people of different cultures and different identities actually bridge the gap or also go to war around gaps. 9-11 happened my second year of college. I still remember where I was when the second tower fell. I was getting up literally from my Arabic 101 class and my friend had called me and I had no idea what was going on. Normally, him and I would walk to class together in the morning. I still remember picking up the phone being like, oh my gosh, I'm coming outside, I'm coming outside. And he said, no, 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 turn on your television. And I turned on the television right when the second tower fell. And I still remember like the week after there was like a vigil at UVA, but I still remember the feeling of what it meant to be a Muslim in America. And I think so much of my identity, even going into politics, but also my first job after graduate school, what I studied in graduate school was so much of like the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. I think I was very much formed by what it meant to be a Muslim in America post 9-11 and also feeling in some ways which probably was our whole life as well, like having an identity that kind of felt like it was at war with or was in conflict with what people were viewing about us. My natural personality has always been a diplomat. So I've always been someone that has known how to code switch into different situations and make people feel really comfortable. Diplomacy and also understanding the world through the lens of foreign policy, politics, political theory, was the way that I tried to understand what was happening in the world and also my place within it. It's also where I found belonging and also where I found a voice. So I knew what it meant to be able to speak to, which is my first job out of graduate school, how to speak to the U.S. military about what was happening in Iraq, what it meant to be able to translate things like, you know, this is what the news is saying, this is what you need to understand. And so I became really good at kind of not only code switching in order for people to be comfortable, but also learning what it meant to translate things so that people could understand what was happening and could distill information for other people. I worked for a defense contracting firm that was, quote unquote, a strategic communications firm, which basically meant in a lot of ways, like how do we promote American messaging in the countries where America's presence or where they were at war, which at the time was Iraq and Afghanistan. In a lot of ways, this was kind of American propaganda. At the time, I thought that was where I could create change. I was like, this is where my role is, because otherwise, if some people like me aren't in those halls of power, then otherwise, it's just going to be through the lens of basically white people that are telling you things about Muslims. And I was like, I'm at least from that part of the world. I should be helping to create more of a bridge there. And then I realized really quickly that no one really cared what a 23 or 24 year old had to say at the time. It was a really misogynistic, 
very like hoorah atmosphere that was very toxic and so I was not happy in that work environment at a certain period of time even though I was there for two years. Shipping can make or break a sale so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows and they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. One day, I basically see Pakistan on the cover of Newsweek magazine listed as the most dangerous place on earth. And I remember feeling such a sense of indignation anger and also just such a sense of injustice that a country that I loved and knew so well was being portrayed in a way that was so through one lens. And I remember actually sitting in the back of a car and my dad was sitting in the front seat and I literally said to him, I said, this is so not okay. And I remember our dad said to me, he's like, well, what are you going to do about it? For some reason, this translated into me launching a current affairs blog by night. So I was at a job that I hated by day. At night, I launched just a simple WordPress blog. I think originally it was like Blogspot, then WordPress. This is like the old school days of blogging back in 2008. Oh, it was called Chup, which as we know in Urdu, Chup means quiet or shush. Also, I made it stand for changing up Pakistan. During the day at my day job, I used to write a report called the Scorpion Report every day. That was basically taking the news about what U.S. media outlets were saying about Iraq and then taking it and distilling it down for the U.S. military. Like, here are the basic things of what you need to know. So I basically took that exact same skill set and applied it to Pakistan. I started interviewing like filmmakers and artists and change makers. I started to get guest posts by people that were academics and wanting to write about different things. And eventually, you know, to the full circle about 1971, I started to write stories about 71 and using the platform to talk about the Bangladeshi lens that a lot of Pakistanis that I know just didn't know growing up. And so Chup kind of became this like outlet for me where I felt really empowered and realized that I had a voice that people actually cared about. One time where I realized people were reading it is when my friend who is white said her mom read one of my posts and I was like, that's cool. And so obviously I was looking at the hits and stuff, but realized that the audience was getting more diverse. I started to find my voice in it too, which I can be, I think I'm pretty funny. And so I was writing in a funny voice as well about commenting on what was happening in politics and things like that. And so started to get invited to like speak on Al Jazeera or speak on BBC about different things that were happening. And I wrote for the Washington Post. There were definitely other current affairs blogs on Pakistan, but that was, I always really had a very strong perspective on what I was writing. There's so much happening in Pakistan and it was so cool. And by day, my job switched over. You know, I, I built out the venture philanthropy arm of our family office. Then I was also looking at and funding potential ideas in Pakistan. This was back again in 2008. And I was writing about people by night. I was looking at things by day and starting to realize like Pakistan as a whole has so much that's unexplored. And when I was talking to people I was like, man, there is so much here that there is that is just so much potential in this country. And it wasn't just Pakistan. It was like every overlooked country in the world. 
So in 2011, I decided to leave the work I was doing with our family office. And Chip actually got shelved pretty quickly after that because building a company was more than a full-time job for me. I had been going to these conferences around the world around like impact investing or social entrepreneurs or startups. And everyone that was talking about international markets was were only talking about India, Mexico, and Kenya. And no one was talking about places like Pakistan or Nigeria or Vietnam, places now that we're all talking about, but back then nobody was. Again, kind of was filled with a sense of injustice that I was like, this is where the world is going to move and how do we help unleash the potential that exists in places like this? And so that's really where Invest to Innovate, which is the company that I founded in 2011, which is now the sister company to our fund, started with the idea of how do we support young, amazing people building great businesses, solving big problems in markets that no one's talking about right now. And so we started in Pakistan because that's where I had built relationships. That's where my heart was in so many ways of my focus and my career. And then it was like no man's land back then. There was barely anything happening in the startup space. No one understood what the hell I was doing. I didn't even understand what the hell I was doing. Before I decided to just go to Pakistan, I had like built it all up in my head. And I had like in my head decided all these things. But the minute I got to Pakistan, you just start talking to people and like your idea starts shifting immediately, right? And so I didn't realize how hard it was going to be. Like, I think I was completely naive as most founders are. I think originally when I started Eye to Eye, it was like a consulting model. and Let's consult with entrepreneurs and help them build their businesses. I had no expertise on what I was doing there. And also companies can't afford to pay you as a consultant when they are just starting out. The startup accelerator that we built in 2012 that was the first accelerator in like that in Pakistan. A startup accelerator is basically, if you think like of a chicken, right? Incubators for chickens are like when an egg goes is born into a chick. And so it's literally like a heated incubator. And so that's what a business incubator is like. It's really from an idea to a little prototype, right? An accelerator is like a chick to a chicken or to like a baby chicken, which is taking the prototype and helping it kind of launch and market or when it's like just a fledgling idea, helping it build out. I'm embarrassed now looking back on the first iteration of our accelerator, but I'm so glad that we just started. I didn't wait to like build out something huge and large. We literally had $6,000 in our bank account and we just did it. We did a partnership with LUMS, the Lahore University of Management Sciences, which is like the top university in Pakistan. They gave us free space. Every single program that we've done ever since then has been an iteration off of it. And we listened to feedback from the founders. I spoke to accelerator programs and programs in other countries. And I learned from that and then pulled that into our program. So the program now is so drastically different, but it wouldn't have existed had we not just started and allowed ourselves to fail and do things wrong. I've always been a community builder. Like I think that's at the heart of who I've always been. And it's kind of how I show up even in my friend groups. It's how I've showed up in family. Every year we started to take our founders up to the mountains in Pakistan for the first weekend of our program. And it was only just a community building retreat. How we kind of break down the walls of what people have learned and unlearned, right? And building community in that moment. And that to me is one of the most powerful weekends that we have. Even the rest of the program is extremely rigorous on business. That first weekend is everyone's favorite weekend, but we also built community amongst our investors. We built community amongst other stakeholders. And so there was so much of community kind of at the heart of what we were building that that became part of the DNA that that felt really exciting for me. Our parents definitely thought I was crazy, especially when I started. 
they were not super happy about me, especially like them moving to the US and then me deciding to build a business in Pakistan and going back and forth when they felt everything was so falling apart and that's why they left. I always say that if my heart could live in both places, it lives both in Pakistan and in the U.S. And because I had those relationships in Pakistan, it made the work feel that much more fulfilling and also less lonely over time because I always felt like I was going to a second home when I was back in Pakistan. I don't think we really started, it started kicking in that we were making real revenue for the first few years. So, so much of it was my savings going into it credit card debt, all this stuff in order to kind of keep the lights on and make things work. We just focus on doing good work. But what started to happen was the World Bank would come to us and be like, hey, everything that you have in your head, we'll pay you to download that and turn it into a research study. That was like one of our first big contracts that we got. I didn't know everything in my head was valuable, right? And the study comes out and it's the first study that's ever been done on the startup ecosystem. And realized then, because obviously I had a background as a research analyst from my defense contracting days, I was like, people are willing to pay for research. That's how our research arm was born, right? It was like coming out of like people realizing that like, oh, people will pay for studies. People will want to understand the market better. And then one of our biggest breaks came from the Australian government that literally said, hey, we want you to be a partner for this project that's helping incubators and accelerators across Asia build out their programs better. And I went to Singapore for a week and literally met 15 incubators and accelerators from across the region. We'd sit down together and talk about how building angel investor networks were similar in Pakistan to Fiji. The problems were the same. And I realized, wow, there's so much knowledge that we have of mistakes that we've made, of things that we've learned that's transferable elsewhere. And then in that process, that contract I won, it was like a matchmaking. It was almost like America's Got Talent where you got chosen by the programs. The programs chose you whether they wanted to work with you or not. And I got chosen by seven programs to work with. I then worked with programs in Nepal, Cambodia, Vietnam. And then as a result of that, like we got a big project with the World Bank. That became so successful that then the IFC wanted us to do it with Iraq and Lebanon. That became successful. So they wanted us to do it in the Middle East. And it wasn't me, right? It was our team. It was like, I happened to just choose and select really good people and realizing very honestly that I didn't know everything and I needed really good people that knew how to do things. And that's how we started to build like a real business around things. And it's also why last year we were in, knock on wood, such a good place business-wise that I was able to step off from being CEO of Invest to Innovate and pass the mantle to a new CEO so I could focus fully on our funds. I was able to be given the position to pass it on to someone who could do even better than me. Boxon as a market is just on everyone's radar. But I think back then, no one saw it, right? Like no one believed any of us, any of the early players in the ecosystem. I mean, Pakistan, not unlike other emerging markets, is what? Two thirds of the country is under 30 years old, right? So we have a heavily Gen Z population that is hyper-connected, hyper-technologically literate, and are hungry. We're actually one of the top 
countries in the world taking edX courses online. Fulbright-wise, we're one of the top countries of kids that apply to go for their Fulbright. When we think about like crypto even, we're in the, apparently the top four countries in the world. For me, it's the, the convergence of a country that has so many problems, but you don't have a lot of entrepreneurs necessarily coming in to solve those problems. So you have an indigenous startup ecosystem built by Pakistanis for Pakistanis. Right now, what's happening in the market, which is really interesting, is a lot of Pakistanis that are moving back home because they see the opportunity and starting businesses and who have had maybe a little bit more exposure abroad and are coming back and applying that learning to what they're building as a startup. For the last four years, we've really started to see kind of the momentum grow of people moving back. Green was basically the Uber for the Middle East, but it, and it outperformed Uber in the Middle East and Pakistan because they were really, really good at, at localizing. They were really good at like executing in those markets. And so became such a contender that they were acquired by Uber a couple of years ago. And so Green being a, a Middle East unicorn, their back end was all built in Pakistan. They actually had like a heavy Pakistan presence in terms of Green and, you know, all the major cities. As a result, it stemmed so many people launching companies across the Middle East, but also in Pakistan. When COVID happened and no one could travel and all of a sudden people became really comfortable by doing due diligence remotely, all of a sudden international VCs were much more comfortable investing in Pakistan, right? Because they didn't have to physically go there. A lot of these international VCs that have invested in Pakistan have actually never even been to the country before, which is interesting, but then got comfortable by investing in Airlift or Bazaar or Retailo or one of the companies that are coming up in this e-commerce space. And then as that happened, you know, the policy barriers, the State Bank of Pakistan set up, they changed the policy regulation. The number one question I would get asked by international investors was, oh my gosh, I don't want to put my money in Pakistan. How am I going to get my money out? There was associated risk with that. When that barrier lifted, where people could set up holding companies abroad, which all happened in the last 18 months, that changed the game. Then all of a sudden people were investing in Singapore holding companies or Dubai or ADGM or Delaware, and it became less of a risk. And so we're kind of at this really exciting inflection point now with Pakistan. I had been building eye to eye or invest to innovate from 2011 to about 2018. So it had been about seven or eight years at that point when the venture space was still very early in Pakistan. Weren't a lot of local venture capital funds. And my partner, Misba, I was a solo founder and my partner, Misba, and I have known each other for about 13 years. She comes actually more linearly from a finance background, but she also has had kind of, you know, was an operator at a fintech. She'd been doing a bunch of different things. She's actually been still part of the eye to eye journey for me because she was on my advisory board. So she's always been really close to what we were doing. We were really good friends. And one night at dinner in Karachi, she was telling me, I'm going to take a sabbatical. I'm going to go for a year. I'm going to sit on a beach. I'm going to like do all these things. And then I literally said to her, I said, hey, why don't we build this together? Why don't we build this fund together? And so she thought I was joking at the time. And then I went back to the place I was staying in Karachi and like literally WhatsApped her. And I was like, I think he thought I was joking. I'm not joking. I'm serious. We should do this together because I couldn't do it by myself. I knew that from like, you know, even speaking to others, like building a fund as a solo GP first time was going to be really hard for me. Misba joined me and then we opened the doors to the fund in August of 2019. So I was the CEO of one entity. I was the general partner and building a fund of this other baby that I was doing. And one was more of a, at that point, a preteen or a teenager. So it was kind of like building on its own. And then I was also building this fund. I was exhausted all the time. I was basically working two full-time jobs. And when COVID happened, it was the first time I was grounded in 10 years. 
But it was also the first time that I actually realized that it was kind of crazy that I was doing two full-time jobs. And actually, it was a mentor of mine that literally said to me, what the fuck are you doing? He's like, you can't do both. He's like, you can't build a venture fund and also do this. Like, he's like, you have to pick. I started the process of thinking through what it meant to give over leadership to someone else. I started working with an executive coach. Shout out to Michelle, the best coach in the world. I ended up randomly, one of our past founders in our accelerator program, Mevish, she was no longer at the startup that she was at when she was in our accelerator program and she was consulting. And one of our team members at Eye to Eye at the time was taking maternity leave. So I was like, hey, Mavish, why don't you fill in for her? And what was interesting was in the back of my head, I was like, Mavish would make a really good CEO, but I didn't want to say it out loud in case I was wrong. Within a month, it became really clear to me that Mavish would make an amazing CEO. She had all the chops to do it. She was more of a builder. I was more of a starter. So a month in, I asked her, and it was something that she hadn't even thought about for herself, was that, you know, was she worthy to be this type of leader? And so as of December 2020, I officially passed the reins to her to be the CEO of Invest to Innovate Eye to Eye. My full-time job is fully on the investment fund with Ms. Buff. Building a fund has been so much fun. It's been really hard fundraising, especially as women, especially as a first-time fund, and especially for Pakistan. But for me, working with founders, we're infusing that into how we do portfolio support for our companies. I've really kind of loved it, and I have felt like I've been drinking from a fire hose in terms of how much we're learning on an everyday basis and how much I'm a different investor than I was a year ago, then two years ago. I'm going to be a different investor six months from now. So I think it's a constant dynamic process. Building in Pakistan is really hard and you have to really understand the market and invest in founders that also understand the market and know what they don't know so that you can know how to help them the best. I hope that the next decade is that we have the proliferation of, I mean, you can say unicorns because that like is what people look to. A unicorn is like a billion dollar valuation of a company, right? Which we're now starting to see companies get to that point. And I think for me, the next 10 years is we want to see that healthy value chain exist for companies that are starting out to not die after their A round or their B round, but healthily get to their next stages of investment. I think we need to also have very strong local ecosystem that can support these plays. I think from a macro standpoint, we're going to have things happen in Pakistan that's going to be out of our control, whether it's the devaluation of the currency, there's going to be inflation, there's going to be things that happen. And so you need founders that are resilient and are able to build when the chips are down. And I think we definitely are seeing that come up in the market. But I also think it's going to be really important as those things continue to happen around us. I used to think that identity or belonging was outside in, like people told you that you belonged somewhere. As I've gotten older and more comfortable in my own skin and what I'm capable of, for me, belonging is inside out. I can belong anywhere if I want to because I know how to make other people comfortable around me. I know how to be comfortable in places. So the biggest strength of not being one thing is that you can kind of belong everywhere and also nowhere. Home for me is as much my family and my husband and my dog who are all in, in the U.S. and in D.C., which is home for me. But home is also where work is as well, which is in work to me is more than just work. It's, it's also belonging and where I found purpose. And I grew up in Pakistan and yet I didn't grow up in Pakistan. I grew up in a version of Pakistan that was very bubbled. 
and very privileged. And to work in Pakistan is such a different thing altogether. Founder Stories is a production of Lola Media and is hosted by me, Mesh Lakani. Thank you to my sister, Kulsum Lakani, for sharing her journey and global awareness with us. For more info on Invest to Innovate, visit their website at investtoinnovate.com. That's invest, the number two, innovate.com. And you can find her on Twitter at Kulsum82. This episode was produced and mixed by Ramsey Yunt with our senior producer, Olivia Briley. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions. We, of course, appreciate you sharing this with your friends and subscribing to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you choose to listen. Until next time.